You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. It is a, a rich blessing to be with you all. I consider it a wonderful honor to be here and to address you from God's Word. We have had a wonderful weekend, and it has been a blessing to be ministered to and to minister to all those who have been here. I want to thank Trinity for the way that you have supported us and prayed for us and called our premier's office and did all of that while I was imprisoned. Grateful for the way that you have stood with us, and not just the way you stood with us in support of us, but the way you stood tall your own selves. Grateful for your courage and the strength that you showed as you resisted the tyranny of your government. And so I want to thank you so much. Um, grateful for Pastor Jacob. I echo his sentiment. I love your pastor. He is a wonderful man of God, and I consider it a, a blessing and an honor to be his friend. And I'm looking forward to, Lord willing, many years of fellowship and friendship together. And, uh, and, and I love that, you know, Tim, I can't, I got to mention Tim. I mean, the three, it's a trio here. Um, love these men. And so truly honored to be able to stand with them and to preach the word of God in unity and power. And now we come to the preaching of God's word. And I am eager to bring God's word to you. In fact, I want to address you from a single verse of scripture as the starting point for a discussion that we're going to have around the sanctifying power of scripture. And so turn to John 17 for a moment. We're going to zero in on John 17, 17, but I'm going to read from verse 16 to verse 20, just to put it in a bit of a context. And my desire this morning is to stir your heart for the word of God and its sanctifying power. Look at John 17. Let's pick it up in verse 16. Jesus is praying to the Father in the presence of his disciples, and he prays this. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And then he says this. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He prays, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. And then, notice verse 20, because the prayer in verse 20 is expanded to include all of us. I do not ask on behalf of these alone but for those also who believe in me through their word. Now consider the context for a moment. This is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. This is the night of his betrayal. He is just moments away from his betrayal, then his mock trial, and then later that day, the crucifixion. So this is the, the final words that Jesus prays in the presence of his disciples for his disciples and by extension for all of us. And when he prays, he prays, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. And so an incredible burden on his heart in his final hours was to pray for the sanctification of his people. 
And the reason that he prays that way is that sanctification is vital to our purpose in the world. And he prays in a way that indicates that the word of God is vital to our sanctification. And that means then that the word of God must be both primary and preeminent in the life of the church. In fact, if you wanted to understand why the church is so weak today, it is because of a lack of the hearing and preaching of God's word. The church is anemic because it's not receiving the very sustenance it needs to be strengthened, to stand firm, to be obedient. And so the flock of Christ in churches all over the world, and certainly in this nation, are being starved of the very thing that is essential to their existence. And so that's why we're going to look at John 17, 17 today, and obviously expanding it to digest a lot of Scripture, some of which I will have you turn to. And so if this is so important, and it is, then we need to be well-versed in sanctification. We need to know what it is. This is the entire crux of the Christian life. This is basic to our existence. We need to understand how sanctification takes place, all that is bound up in it, everything about it. And so in our time today, I'm going to seek to answer the following questions. What is sanctification? How does progressive sanctification take place? How does the word accomplish our sanctification? And what implications can we draw from this? And again, I'm going to bring you to a number of portions of Scripture. These are portions of Scripture you should be very familiar with as we ensure that we are rightly calibrated to what sanctification is and its priority in the life of the church. So let's start here. What is sanctification? What is sanctification? Well, looking at John 17, 17, the, the first two words of it, Jesus prays, sanctify them. To be sanctified is to be set apart. It's to be set apart from sin and set apart to God. And there are three stages of our sanctification. The first is positional sanctification. This takes place the moment we're saved, the moment we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. In that moment, we are born from above in regeneration. We are imputed with the righteousness of Christ. We receive a new nature and are new creatures in Christ. Our sins, past, present, and future, are judicially forgiven. We are reconciled to God and joined to Christ. And the Spirit takes up permanent residence within us to indwell us for all eternity. And at that point, we have everything necessary to stand holy and blameless before God. Listen to the way the Apostle Paul expresses this in 1 Corinthians 6, 11. He says this, Such were some of you, after citing a number of sinful lifestyles. Paul says, Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Where being washed 
being sanctified, being justified are completed realities. That's done, that's fixed, it's finished. And that's positional sanctification. But though we possess that, though we have this position before God and are perfect in righteousness in that position because we have the righteousness of Christ, we are not yet practically perfect. And so the second stage of our sanctification is progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. And this refers to the process of becoming ever increasingly what we already are positionally. It's the process of being conformed into the image and likeness of Christ, of ever increasingly being set apart from sin and ever increasingly being set apart to God. It refers to our spiritual growth and development, our becoming spiritually mature, going from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. And progressive sanctification takes up the entire time between justification and glorification. So all of the Christian life consists of progressive sanctification, a, a process that finds its completion in the third stage of sanctification. Now you need to understand something. Positional sanctification has implications for progressive sanctification. So if you have been positionally sanctified, set apart, then you will inevitably be being progressively sanctified. If you are not being progressively sanctified, it brings into question whether or not you have been justified, positionally sanctified. Because all those who have been positionally sanctified are indwelt by the Spirit of God, have eternal life, have been set free from slavery to sin, are no longer under the power and dominion of sin, and now have both the ability and the desire to obey God. And so Paul can say this, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And he's talking about progressive sanctification because he says that you abstain from sexual immorality. It is God's will that we pursue sanctification, that we be holy, that we walk in moral purity, that we walk in obedience, that we be Christ-like and that we be putting sin to death. Elsewhere, Paul writes this, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Where perfecting is a present active participle calling for ever an ongoing action. In fact, this is when you have to see. Philippians 3, turn there for a moment. I want you to see Paul's attitude and disposition to progressive sanctification in his own life. We can actually go elsewhere and show his commitment to the sanctification of God's people. His whole ministry was geared to that. That's Colossians 1, 28 and 29. But here, his focus is actually on his own life. So Philippians 3, verse 12 and following says this. Now this is the Apostle Paul. So if this is his disposition to the pursuit of holiness, this ought to be our disposition. 
Philippians 3, verse 12, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now stay there for a moment. So Christ laid hold of Paul for a particular purpose, to conform him into his own image. And Paul lived his Christian life pressing toward that goal, always pressing on toward that goal. That's progressive sanctification. It's us becoming ever more practically what we are positionally. Now, the third stage is perfected sanctification. So positional, progressive, now perfected sanctification. And this takes place again at glorification, when we finally become practically what we are already positionally, when our position and practice are brought into total alignment. And Paul describes this in Philippians 3, verse 20 and following. Look there, he says, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly await for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So Paul is talking about total transformation where we lay aside this mortal flesh and the, the, the remaining principle of sin and put on immortality and in the process, perfect holiness. We are finally set apart from sin. Complete and total transformation into the image of God. And this is the purpose of salvation. Because listen to Romans 8, verse 29 and 30. It says this, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed into the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. As Paul lays out the whole plan of redemption, he can describe our glorification as being so certain that it's a past tense reality, even though we yet look to the future fulfillment of it. And so you have positional, progressive, and perfected sanctification. And when Jesus prays in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth, he is praying for their progressive sanctification because he is praying in the context of them being in the world and not of the world. Jesus asks the Father to progressively sanctify us. And that leads us to our second question. And the question is this, how does progressive sanctification take place? How does progressive sanctification take place? Now, look back for a moment at John 17, 17. Again, Jesus prays, sanctify them 
in the truth. Your word is truth. So progressive sanctification takes place by means of the truth of the word of God. We could even say it like this. Sanctification does not and cannot take place apart from the truth of the word of God. The word of God is absolutely essential to our sanctification. And it's important to note the role of the spirit in this. Because the spirit is the spirit of truth. And the spirit of truth provides what? The truth. And as we expose ourselves to the truth, he sanctifies us in it or by means of it. And there's a relationship here between being spirit-filled and the presence of God's word in our lives. If you want to be spirit-filled, then you need to be word-filled. And to see this, turn to Ephesians 5. I'm going to show you two texts that are parallel portions of Scripture, one in Ephesians, one in Colossians, where they are essentially expressing the same realities with slightly different emphasis, and yet you'll see the two come together wonderfully. Ephesians 5, verse 15 and following says this, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. And let me just say this, I'm reading from the New American Standard, so if there's a difference there, my apology. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And notice the result here. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So Paul is exhorting us to be filled with the Spirit. And the effect of that, among other things, is speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our hearts to God and giving thanks to Him. We'll now look at Colossians 3.16 and following. And notice the similarity of these two portions of Scripture. We've just been told to be filled with the Spirit. And in Colossians 3.16, Paul says this, and it's a command. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing. Note this, one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So we're to let the word of Christ dwell within us, and the effect of that is the same effect we saw back in Ephesians 5, where we're to be filled with the Spirit. And so if you want to be full of the Spirit, you want to be filled with the Spirit, then you have to have the word of Christ richly dwelling within you. The two are essentially synonymous. To have the Spirit filling you and the word filling you are identical. And being filled with the Spirit is an essential element in our sanctification. Since you must be filled with the Spirit to walk by means of the Spirit, and you must be filled with the Spirit to bear the fruit of the Spirit. 
And so again, if you want to live the spirit-filled life, you must live the word-filled life. One cannot occur without the other. Now, in saying that, though we're active, we are active in our sanctification. We are not passive in this process of being progressively sanctified. We are active. But nevertheless, God is the driving force behind this sanctification. So we're asking, how does this take place? And we understand it's the Spirit of God using the Word of God to conform us into the image of Christ. We're answering that question now. But we have to understand that God is ultimately sovereign in our sanctification. And you have to see this too. So Philippians 2, turn there for a moment. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, really important verses. Verses you must be familiar with and beautifully capture this reality that God is the driving force behind our sanctification. Philippians 2, 12 and following says this, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And here's the reason. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So Paul exhorts us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's our sanctification. But the reason we're to do that is because God is at work in us, both to will and to work in accordance with his good pleasure. And so God is the driving force behind our sanctification. And he works in us through the agency of the Spirit of God by means of the truth of his word. And as he is working in us, causing us to will and to work for his good pleasure, we are to work out that which he's working in. And so we're active in our sanctification, but God is ultimately sovereign over the entire process. Now, if that's true, and it is, then it has some massive implications. Sanctification, the process of being conformed into the image of Christ, takes place on God's terms. You can only be sanctified God's way. There are no shortcuts in sanctification. All counterfeit approaches will ultimately fail. You must work out what God is working in. There is no three-step process to holiness. There is no five-step process to holiness. There's no 12-step process to holiness. There are no fast tracks in sanctification. And there are all kinds of counterfeit approaches that hinder the growth and development of the blood-bought body of Christ. A significant aspect of pastoral ministry, just ask Pastor Jacob, I'm, I'm sure, and Tim as well, a significant aspect of pastoral ministry is actually pointing out these counterfeit approaches to sanctification. Satan loves to hinder sanctification and has infiltrated the church with all kinds of false methods. Let me give you some examples. Legalism. Defining holiness in purely external terms, 
where you are defined by what you don't do, or antinomianism, where any effort on your part, any effort to grow in Christ-likeness, any effort to, to grow in holiness is deemed a work of the flesh, and you simply let go and let God, or mysticism, seeking to live the Christian life by the Spirit apart from the truth, where you're attributing all kinds of things to the Spirit that are either a figment of your imagination or actually the work of Satan, or experientialism, where you're living from one spiritual experience to another and starving in between, or emotionalism, where your Christian life is defined by the intensity of your emotions and you've effectively made worshiping Christ all about you. Or Gnosticism, where you claim to have access to a higher knowledge, a knowledge that isn't readily available in the Word of God. Or Syncretism, either blending Christianity with other pagan religions or with other godless ideologies, like psychology, or asceticism, believing you're sanctified through a severe treatment of the body. Listen to Paul on this. Colossians 2.23 says this, these are matters of which, to be sure, have the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Or pragmatism, simply doing what you believe works, failing to realize that it doesn't. Or feminism, believing your sanctification is defined by your freedom from some perceived male oppression. Or conversely, believing that you're sanctified by reacting against feminism. That as you react against the culture and the feminism you see there, that by being more countercultural to that, by that you're sanctified. That's just another form of legalism. Or Marxism. Believing you're sanctified by the adoption of ideologies like critical race theory, which isn't just an attack on real sanctification, it's an attack on the gospel itself. And when you employ a counterfeit method of spiritual growth, God will not bless that. He cannot bless that. He can't. He will allow you to run the hamster wheel of despair in that approach because he cannot give his glory to that. And so you will be on one hamster wheel to another trying to grow in the Christian life and will end up in the pit of despair or worse unless you adopt God's method of sanctification. It happens on his terms. So let's just review a little bit here. Sanctification takes place by means of the truth as God works in us through the agency of his spirit and by means of his word. And we're to work out that which God has worked in and indicates that sanctification takes place on God's terms, ruling all counterfeit methods useless. 
And that leads us now to our third question. And our third question is this, how does the word accomplish our sanctification? How does the word accomplish our sanctification? It accomplished it, well, I'm going to give you actually 12 ways. So I'm going to give you 12 ways that the word of God, when energized by the spirit, accomplishes our sanctification. 12 ways. And I'm not going to have you flip to these for time's sake. So just sit back. You can jot some of these notes down. Just take this all in. 12 ways the word of God, when energized by the spirit of God, accomplishes our sanctification. One. It provides vital sustenance. It provides vital sustenance. Quoting Deuteronomy 8.3, Jesus says, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. God's word is food for the living soul. It feeds the new nature. And our new nature that we received at salvation needs ongoing nourishment and nurturing. Paul says this to Timothy. He says, in pointing these things out to the brethren, and there he's talking about error, doctrines of demons. Paul says this, in pointing out things, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Timothy was to be being nourished on the word of God to be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And if that's true for Timothy, then it's true for all of us. We need to be being nourished on the word of God. And so God's word provides vital sustenance too. It is vital to our growth. It is vital to our growth. Listen to 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2. It says this, Therefore, putting aside all malice, and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. So in the same way that an infant cries for milk, in the same way an infant demands to be fed with the milk of his mother or her mother's breast, in that same way we are to long for the pure milk of the word. And we are to long for it that by it we may grow in respect to salvation. God's word is vital to our spiritual growth. Now you may look at this and go, I don't think I desire God's word like that. That you are not currently craving the word of God the way a newborn infant longs for milk. And so you say, James, how do I cultivate this desire? Well, one, heed the instruction of verse one. It says there that you must put off malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. You must heed that. That is critical to cultivating the desire for the word. Why? Because sin chokes out our desire. It stifles our desire for the word of God. So there has to be a, a confessing of sin, a putting off of sin. Then you need to pray for the desire. And as you ask God for that desire, you need to confess the fact that you don't desire the word of God as you should. You need to confess that to him. It's sin. 
He's commanding you to long for his word like a newborn infant longs for milk. Therefore, it's sin not to. And so you must confess it as sin, asking him to give you this desire. And then you need to increase your exposure to the word. You need more of the word. The more words you get, the more you'll want. It, it, it begets appetite to expose yourself continually to the word of God. And as you do that, your desire for God's word will increase. You put off sin, you pray for the desire to have, the, to, to, to long like you should, and you also confess that you should be longing for it and aren't, and then you just take it in. You ingest it. So it's critical, vital to our growth. Three, it renews the mind. It renews the mind. Listen to Romans 12, 2, familiar verse, and do not be conformed to this world. So the world is trying to press you into its mold. The, word of God, the world wants to, to press you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So again, the world is trying to squeeze you into its ways. And you resist that by renewing your mind in the word of God. And this results in being ever increasingly transformed into the image of Christ. And as your mind is renewed, your desires and affections are enlivened, and your will is activated to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And as a result, you're able to prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I mean, you want to ask the question, why are so many churches, or why did so many churches close during the pandemic? Does it not come back to the renewing of the mind? The world tried to press the church into its mold, and the church just went along with it? So God's word renews the mind. Four, it displays the glories of Christ. It, it displays the glories of Christ. This is really important. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So we are beholding the glory of Christ with unveiled face. And as we behold his glory on the pages of scripture and we delight in the glory that we see, we are transformed into the same image from one level of glory to the next, which is one level of sanctification to the next. That's progressive sanctification. And so God's word puts the glories of Christ on display, and this too transforms us. This is why preaching is so critical. Because in the preaching of the word of God, when you have a man of God who has labored in the text of Scripture all week long to mine the gold of the word of God, then he comes to the people of God as we come together as a temple of God where the Spirit dwells among us, and he declares the word of God to you with clarity. And, and his goal, his desire is to put the glory of Christ on display, that you will see him as glorious and beautiful, and that you would see that image and be, be, be delighted and worship him. And as you worship him, you then lay aside the sin that pales in comparison, and you are conformed evermore into his image. So it displays the glories of Christ. Five, it exposes our sin. 
It exposes our sin. Listen to Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word is living and active and it opens us up and lays us bare before God. He is able to see into our heart and we know he can see into our heart. And the word of God convicts us not just of clear expressions of transgression, but even judges our thoughts, intentions, and motives. And so this is why there are times on a Sunday where you think that Pastor Jacob is speaking directly to you as if you're the only person in the room. In fact, you would almost wonder, has he been following me around this week? Has Jacob been in my living room? And it's, he hasn't been, but God has. And God is speaking to you through his word to pierce your heart, to open you and lay you bare before him, to expose your sin, that you would confess your sin, give honor and glory to Christ for his atoning work and be cleansed. And so it's critical for our sanctification because it exposes our sin. Six, as I just alluded to, it produces confession. It produces confession. Pastor Jacob read this a moment ago. Psalm 32, three and following. Listen, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Do you see there that David was keeping silent about his sin and was experiencing physiological effects for having done so? He said, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you. In my iniquity, I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. The word of God produces confession. We've just been exposed through the living and active word and that results in confession. And David his very vitality and vigor were drained away from him because he was refusing to acknowledge his sin. But when he did, God forgave the guilt of his sin. Sounds a lot like 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God is faithful to do that. So confession is essential in our sanctification. You need to be regularly confessing sin. It should really be a daily practice. You should be confessing your sin. There should be moments you're confessing your sin. That was a simple thought. Should be thinking that. That reaction was wrong. Please forgive me, Father. Confession should be an ever and ongoing reality in your life as you acknowledge your sin. That will maintain a, a, a short account with God, a tender heart. Critical produces confession. Seven, the word of God generates repentance. The word of God generates repentance. Listen to a longer portion of 2 Corinthians 7, just 8 and 11, but nevertheless, it's a longer portion. It says this, for though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, 
but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And here's the fruit of repentance. You ready for this? For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So we confess, we saw that a moment ago, but there ought to be a change, a heart dispositional change, one that has been generated by sorrow and conviction and that results in a change in direction where we are putting off unrighteousness and we are putting on righteousness in its place. So God's word produces repentance. Eight, it purifies our lives. It purifies our lives. Psalm 119.9, how can a young man keep his way pure? How can a young man keep his way pure? The idea there is that it is impossible for a young man to keep his way pure, but if a young man can be one who keeps his way pure, if there's a solution for the young man, then there's a solution for everybody. How can a young man keep his way, his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. The word of God has a purifying power. Psalm 119.11, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. And so God's word purifies us. Nine, it builds us up. It builds us up. Acts 20 and verse 32, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. So Paul is commending the Ephesian elders both to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. To say that it builds us up is to say that it edifies us. The word of God is commended to us for our edification. And our edification is essential to our spiritual growth. 10, it makes us wise. It makes us wise. Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It's God's word that makes us wise, that takes us from being simpletons, from being open-minded, and it makes us wise. As we see all of life through the lens of Scripture, listen to Psalm 119, 98 and following, your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers. For your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged because I observed your word or your precepts. So you can have more wisdom than your enemies, more wisdom than, than your teachers, more wisdom than the aged by understanding and knowing the word of God. It makes us wise. 11, it yields immense blessing. It yields immense blessing. We read this earlier too. Psalm 119, 1 and 2. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, 
who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. Do you want to experience real, lasting, soul-satisfying joy and blessing? You do, don't you? Do you? It's through the word of God, the kind of blessing that will be evident to everyone when your word is molded and shaped by the word of God and you are experiencing the blessing that comes from it, it will be evident to everyone that the word of God richly dwells within you. And so if you want that, then walk in heartfelt obedience to God's word, earnestly and carefully observing his testimonies and seeking him with all your heart. And then you will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, yielding its fruit in its season and prospering in all that you do. God's word yields immense blessing. And last but not least, 12, it possesses everything you need. The word of God possesses everything you need. It is completely and supremely sufficient for your sanctification. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. He says, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The word of God is supremely sufficient to fully furnish you for everything that's good. Every good work. The word of God is all you need to be furnished to carry that out. Or 2 Peter 1.3, the word of God possesses everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything. Everything. So the word of God is spiritual food, the substance of our spiritual growth, the instrument of the renewing of our minds, displays the glories of Christ, exposes our sin, produces confession, produces repentance, purifies our lives, Edifies, edifies our hearts, makes us wise, yields immense blessing, and equips us for every good work. And so it is no wonder that David prays in Psalm 19 that God's word is more valuable than gold and sweeter than honey. Can you say that this morning? Can you say the word of God is more valuable than gold and sweeter than honey? When, when the word of God says that, there's a, an experience of the sweetness of the word of God where you can say this is sweeter than honey. Job 23, 12, I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. That's Job there is intense joy and delight to be found in God's word. And so listen, we've defined sanctification, both past, present, and future. We've identified how sanctification takes place, that God works in us through the spirit and by means of his word. We've identified how God's word accomplishes this, noting 12 ways the word of God works in our lives. So now, let's ask our final question, what are the implications of this? What are the implications of this? And we could go in a number of different directions. We could talk about your personal ingestion of the word of God. We could do that. We could talk about your personal relationship to the word of God. We could do that. We could also talk about 
the, the, the primacy of the preaching of the word of God, how the, the pulpit ministry of the church is critical to the spiritual growth and development of God's people, but for the sake of time, let's home in on a particular matter. And I want you to track with me on this. If our sanctification is of highest importance, and if it takes place on God's terms, and if there are all kinds of counterfeit methods, then we need to be incredibly what? Discerning. Discerning. And the scriptures speak to this. Colossians 2.8, listen. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Anything that offers a different approach falls into the category of empty deception, philosophy of men, tradition of men. It's not according to Christ. And so it is critical that you not be taken captive. You must embrace the God-ordained means of sanctification. You must embrace the word of God as central in your life. There are no shortcuts. There are no fast tracks. And any other approach to the Christian life will only fail to, to do anything. It will fail to help your sanctification. It will hinder it as well. And so you've got to be incredibly discerning. Listen to Paul, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5. He says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Ideological fortresses are raised up in the world, offering to you a counterfeit approach to sanctification, and you have to reject them. They need to be brought down, exposed for what they are. And one of the functions of preaching is this very reality. So when, when Pastor Jacob steps on your toes by pointing out something that's harmful to you, understand he's fulfilling his God-ordained duty. He is bringing down ideological fortresses that are being raised up against the knowledge of God. And he's doing that because he loves you. And the word of God addresses every single ideology. Everything the world produces, the word of God addresses it. Everything. And just smashes it like a hammer. Jeremiah refers to the word of God as a hammer. And, and the hammer of God's word will take any ideology of the world and obliterate it. God's word is truth, and truth is reality. So this is it. There you have it. This is your mission in life, that you would grow in holiness, be molded into the image of Christ. It's going to have implications for your life, your home, your family, your workplace. It's going to have an impact there. But you need to prioritize your spiritual development. But we got to go back to the beginning, because if you don't know Christ... If you aren't in Christ, if you have not been positionally sanctified, then you can't even embark on this journey. You must first be sanctified 
positionally, before you can even embark on the journey of progressive sanctification. So you must actually come to Christ first. You need to recognize that God is perfect in his holiness. And unless you come to him on his terms, unless you repent of your sin, unless you bow your knee to God in accordance with the means of salvation in his son, not only can you not embark on this journey, you are facing eternal hell. If you die in a condition, in the condition that we all come into the world in without Christ, you are going to enter into judgment for your sin. And it will be a just penalty for you have sinned against a holy God. And that will be an eternity in hell under the judgment of God where you will have even a sense that what you're receiving is truly just for your sin. And yet God in his mercy sent his son into the world to take upon himself human flesh, to live under the law of God, to fulfill it in every respect, to be tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. And then he went to the cross. And on that cross, he suffered under the wrath of God, where God was pouring out upon Christ the wrath of the, 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 the wrath, his wrath for the sin of all who would ever believe on his name. He died, went into the grave, and rose on the third day. And now you need to repent of your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to confess him as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And if you would turn from your sin and believe on him, you will be saved. All who call upon his name will be saved. And so if you have not yet believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, then let this day be the day. Not tomorrow, Not a week from now, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Believe this day on the Lord Jesus Christ, be reconciled to God, and then embark on this journey of being ever more molded into the image of Christ. Where your sanctification would be a fulfillment of the prayer Jesus prayed in John 17, 17, that God would sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. And so I invite you to do that today and to enter into this glorious journey of being molded into the image of Christ and knowing the fullness of joy that comes with walking with God and experiencing the fullness of fellowship with him. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time in your word. We pray that you would forgive us for a lack of desire for your word that you would increase our desire and hunger and thirst for it. And Father, we pray that your word would be powerful in our lives individually and in the life of this church corporately, and that you would build this church up to all maturity, that you would be honored and glorified, and that she would continue to be a bright and shining light in this world. For the honor and glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.